The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight I want to talk about um, Dana Sila Bhavana. These are sometimes called the three bases of meritorious action. With a bit of a mouthful. But it's basically the Buddha's response in the Buddha's teachings. It was his response um, to very obvious question that you would ask someone like the Buddha, I want to be happy, tell me how to do it. Okay. And basically people would show up and ask the Buddha something not so different than that. And he would say, well, it's pretty lawful. You can bank on it. Dana sila bhavana. If you cultivate dana sila bhavana, you will be planting seeds for happiness. And there's really no way for those seeds, I mean, any given seed, you know, may, what's that passage in the Bible, you know, fall on infertile soil and not produce anything. But if you keep planting certain seeds, some of those seeds will take root, some of those seeds will take root and grow up and have more seeds, and the cumulative effect will be profound, like this forest, right? So, um, you know, there's a kind of lawfulness to this. It actually, when we really start to get it, it, it kind of scares us. The hair on the back of the neck sort of stands up because on some more egoic level, we're not sure we want to be responsible for our happiness and unhappiness. It's just so much more convenient to blame others or the world or, you know, whatever. But to feel and accept that empowerment that I can plant seeds of happiness. You probably know some of these words. Dana, um, Pamela talked about today, is that circle of giving and receiving. The opposite would be stinginess. I mean, it doesn't take much embodied research, you know, just paying attention and noticing in our body, mind, how it all works, that stinginess is not the way to happiness. We observe it when we observe other people who are being stingy in a moment. Like, if we were to ask, does that person look happy? No, they don't look happy when they're being stingy. You know, strategic. I always use examples how, you know, just growing up in a big family, being the middle kid, being hungry, <laughs> as kids are, you know. It's like, uh, just like wanting the bigger piece, you know, or wanting the more tasty morsel, you know, just on that l simple level of greed, you know. And I still see it, and you know, both my parents grew up in the upper Midwest during the Dust Bowl days, you know, the 30s on farms, and uh, they have this deep imprint too about scarcity and 
frugality, both healthy and unhealthy. So that gets passed down, and I see it all the time. I notice it every time I go through the food line, you know, like at a place like Cloud Mountain. You know, just, I, that whole dynamic of stinginess versus generosity is very alive in my mind. And, uh, and, it, and it's just so interesting about the short-term seeming pleasure of just, I'm in line, taking what I want, you know, without regard to uh, feeling part of the community and, you know, wondering. I mean, I had that uh, coming down, we, we eat upstairs, uh, there's a little room up there, staff room for people, staff people to have their lunch. And uh, the day they had cookies out, you know, and it was like just observing my mind the way it is. It's like, are there cookies left? Right? I'm sure this, I wasn't the only one. And it wasn't, it's not like I was hungry or even thought they were, I mean, they were good cookies, but they didn't have chocolate in them. <laughs> but the, I, you know, and I didn't tell my mind what to do. I, because, you know, I'm a Buddhist practitioner, so we're observing the mind. You know, and there are moments of <clears throat> greed and stinginess and moments of, well, the retreatants are probably more in need of whatever cookies. And besides, it won't really be satisfying in the way the lie in the mind is saying that they're going to be satisfied, right? I'll just feel, I was already pleasantly full, I would start to feel unpleasantly full <laughs> if I had another cookie. But it was, it was just interesting, it, you know, all the way, even, you know, strategically walking by, but knowing I could easily cycle back and just pausing at the bulletin board, even though there was nothing to read, just <laughs> to see what my mind was going to do. Get the cookie or not get the cookie. And uh, it's, this is exactly the place of our practice. It's, and you know, we talk about sometimes being dull, but what I try to convey in the guided sit, you know, that short guided sit is, it's quite impactful, this dynamic. It's really about who we're going to become, what we're becoming. You know, a miserable, frightened, greedy, suspicious animal or a relaxed, open-hearted, sensitive human being. And all the sort of possibilities of what being human can be. And we see that sometimes in ourselves and sometimes in others, and we see the opposite, right? To really, um, like a cornered animal, where we're willing to lie, we're willing to be hateful, we're willing to be aggressive. So this, um, it's kind of in, in the Buddhist tradition, it's talked about as the initial insight. So when we pay enough attention, then there's an awakening 
Hopefully we're all in the midst of this awakening. Before this awakening, we're not truly a moral being in that best sense of the word. World, word. You know, we're, we're just not understanding that how we relay actions of thought, word, and deed matter. It's just a matter, you know, from the more, not to put animals down, because we're animals, but, you know, that more limited point of view, animal point of view, it's what we can get away with. Can I take this? You know, you see that with a pack of dogs, if you watch, you know, where there's a hierarchy. Or squirrels, like uh, we have a bird feeder in our backyard, and I don't know what it's about our neighborhood, but we have just tons of gray squirrels. I mean, I've seen more than a dozen, and we have a small backyard in our backyard at one time. And uh, we always have bird feed out there, so and some of that, of course, scatters on the ground, and the squirrels get it. But, yeah, lots of squirrels. And there's some kind of pecking order in those squirrels about like, but they're, they're constantly testing, you know, and like, can I be in the most productive spot under the bird feeder, you know, and how close to that most productive spot is that more dominant squirrel going to let me be? And, uh, and just the tension in that. You know, even if you're the top squirrel, you constantly, it would be irritating to have to constantly defend. <coughs> and then, you know, as you get older and fatter, it's not so easy. <laughs> and it's like, you ch finally decide, I've really got to chase this one squirrel away, far, so it doesn't come back all the time. And then sure enough, another squirrel is there in your spot. And so uh, this is our destiny, you know, and the world, the way the world is, which we'll discover tomorrow <coughs> when we turn on our cell phones. Give yourself some time. I mean, nothing bad. I actually haven't been looking at the news, so I have no idea. <laughs> But Cloud Mountain seems to be doing fine. <laughs> but the whole world is really that manifestation of, you know, instead of planting seeds of generosity, and sila is this deep connection and valuing of non-harming. And uh, Bhavana, Shelley talked about last night, is this uh, cultivation of the heart. Whether we're cultivating the wholesome qualities of love, or cultivating samadhi, cultivating wisdom, or we're cultivating the heart, the heart that can be intimate with things just as they are. And the Buddha said, like I mentioned, if you want to be happy, you just plant seeds for dana, sila, bhavana. You don't worry about when they're going to sprout. You just keep in any moment, creatively, how can I be showing up, relating, being in this moment in a way that's planting seeds, not of stinginess, but of generosity. Not of rationalizing harm, harming myself and others, that really valuing non-harming of myself and others. How can I be showing up in this moment in a way that 
values that stability of present moment awareness and seeing things as they are, not operating on a fixed view, arrogant sense that I already know, so I don't have to bother being interested or sensitive or intimate because I already know. This is a yucky moment. It really shouldn't be this way. So I have every right to be tight. Right? I mean, isn't that how we operate a lot of time? We don't take the bigger picture in, like, how's that working for you, Mark? We just presume that I should be tight, I should be angry, I should be disappointed, I should embody that unwholesome root. And, um, you know, the Buddha talks about these unwholesome roots, akusala, as spreading vines. I forget if either Shalyari mentioned the spreading vines simile that the Buddha used. So it's really, again, it's kind of scary. <laughs> but some of you might know this just from um, studying nature, but uh, there are these trees in the tropics, uh, and they, they start to grow on the limbs of big tropical hardwoods, like when birds poop out the seeds. And they're able to grow right on the limbs. There's enough humidity and debris there on the limbs of these trees. And eventually they'll drop roots down. And over a period of many years, the entire tree, and not even just that tree, but many, many trees, sometimes the size of city blocks, what was once maybe a diverse tropical forest is just one plant, basically, these, uh, these encircling vines. And there, you don't even see any part of the original tree because it gets all encircled by the vine that's taken over the structure of the tree. So it's like, uh, well, you could make a horror movie out of it if you just speeded it up. <laughs> And this is, and we really see this, I mean, like someone, like the two of us and several of you who've done a number of retreats, I mean, in my adult life, years of retreat practice when you add it all up, and, uh, and I notice, like, when I come on retreat in the first few days, that's when I notice the encircling vines, the the seeds that were planted that have this tendency to take over the mind. And, and as, although it's really unpleasant, this is the time to see what had been planted and to feel, more importantly, to feel what that feels like, which is the uprooting process. Powerful passage in uh, one of the suttas from the Buddha. This one's called Two, kind, Two Kinds of Thought. I'll just give you the, the setup. You know, the Buddha was teaching some of the monks and nuns and lay people, and he said, Before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened one, the thought occurred to me, Why don't I divide my thinking into two sorts? So, I made my thinking imbued with greed, thinking imbued with ill will, aversion, and thinking in, imbued with harmfulness, <coughs> one sort, and thinking imbued with 
renunciation or generosity, thinking imbued with non-ill will or kindness, love, and thinking imbued with harmlessness or compassion, another sort. Right? So it's just wholesome and unwholesome. Right? As I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, now this is so interesting, I love this. Here's the Buddha as a practitioner, right? not yet fully awakened. As I remain, right? not just ordinary practice, he was heedful, ardent, and resolute. Even then, thinking imbued with sensuality, with greed, arose in me. Thinking imbued with ill will, thinking imbued with harmfulness, right? Aggression. Slap that mosquito, you know. Crush that creepy crawler. You know, they practiced a lot outside. You can imagine that kind of irritation, you know. We should kill those tigers, otherwise they're going to eat us. Not that the monks would do that, but, you know, encourage the lay people. <laughs> Get rid of those tigers. There's all kinds of stories. Even in the last, uh, in the, before Thailand got really developed in the early 1900s, um, there was sort of a Reformation movement, Thai forest tradition it's called, and because uh, Buddhism had become pretty institutionalized in part to protect Thailand from becoming colonized by the British and other uh, Western European countries. And uh, so the powers that be in Thailand probably wisely thought, well, we'll institutionalize Buddhism and we'll help kind of hold us together and resist the colonizing forces. But it's not so great for Buddhism or any kind of spiritual practice to become an institution. So there was this, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, this sort of back to the basics movement that got called the Thai forest tradition. And they headed for the hills, literally, and where there were still tigers back then in the early 1900s. But, uh, but just the remoteness and just being in the natural elements was really useful. Um, so, back to the story. So the Buddha just divided his thoughts into those two, two uh, categories, wholesome and unwholesome. And he realized that when thinking arose, uh, mind states that it were uh, all about greed or all about ill will or all about justifying harm, I discerned that thinking of this kind has arisen in me and that it leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others and to the affliction of both. It obstructs discernment, promotes vexation, it does not lead to unbinding, right? It, didn't, it doesn't say that he got rid of it. What it says is he discerned its moral quality. This is what we're asked to do. It's really an act of courage. We see ourselves fuming about somebody at home, you know, some old <coughs> wound. It happens, right, on retreat. Some old memory about somebody doing us injustice. And then we're just fuming. And then mindfulness at some point hopefully kicks in. And we realize, now, a newer practitioner wants to slap it like a mosquito. Don't do that. Don't think that. Like, I'm, that's not what we're here to do. But a, a more mature practitioner has the attitude, but this is interesting. This mind state of ill will has arisen in me. 
it leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both. Right? Like in a retreat context, we'll start slamming doors and bother all the other yogis just because we're fuming about something that happened two years ago. Right? We start bumping into things because we're not mindful. We're in that universe where mind is created. So it's not good for anybody's well-being. And that it's, you know, it's vexing. It doesn't lead to unbinding. It doesn't lead to the release of the heart. And that's what we want to discern. Oh, this is how you plant seeds for help. This is hellish, and it's planting seeds for help. And you see it in living color. And if we see that enough, it, it can't be unseen. Like it, it leaves an impression in the heart so deep it becomes the law. I mean, there's lots of fun stories. Kamala, some of you know Kamala Masters, tells a story about her teacher, one of her important teachers, Meninjiji, who's also one of Joseph Goldstein's important teachers uh, in India, an Indian man. But, uh, just one time when a really difficult situation was going on and Manindaji was in Hawaii staying with Kamala because uh, he needed some surgery and he was recuperating in some difficult scene between Kamala's uh, past uh, her um, ex-husband and her daughter. They were having a huge argument and Kamala was so embarrassed. This was happening in front of her spiritual teacher, her Dharma teacher, you know, but there's nothing she could do. And, and Manindraji just put his hand on her wrist and said, it's the law. <laughs> <laughs> Causes and conditions. Like when all this is in motion, then things play out this way, right? It's the law. And that's what we want to see, whether we're observing externally some terrible thing unfolding that you're part of or you're just observing as a witness to it or you're observing it internally in terms of your own psychology, emotions. It's the law. And, you, and we really want to see it because the starving of that pattern, the weakening of that pattern depends on that clear discernment this is hell and it leads to hell. It's not for my well-being, it's not for anybody's well-being. It's... Now we, we think sometimes like, why doesn't it go away? Because I know this is bad. But we have to understand what an act of courage it is to observe, to be really intimate with greed, with hatred, with harmfulness, to really see it internally playing out in our own mind. So we're not actually stamp, stamping on ants or, you know, we're just seeing it play out in our own heart and mind. So we're not yet creating karma by harming others. And we're preventing our own harm by discerning what this is. The discerning of unskillful states is skillful. It's liberating, powerfully liberating. It's unpleasant to see unwholesome states, but it's liberating. 
And that's the uprooting process. And the, the more pleasant half of the work we do is noticing the wholesome. And there's a law there too. And that law we want to be ringingly clear when we see ourselves or around us and we see somebody being generous, somebody letting go, when we see somebody really um, embodying kindness in an uncontrived way and compassion in uncontrived ways, when we see someone deeply respecting how easy it is to cause harm and without getting tight, just being full of care, how they're showing up in the world, the kind of choices they're making, their own interest in their unconscious biases, right? We talked about racism a few times this retreat, you know, just like, yeah, I guess I'm part of this. So what am I not seeing in my own tendencies, in my own ways of relating and the choices that I make, what I do and what I don't do? that can be beneficial. That's respecting harm and our capacity to harm others and ourselves. We start getting really full of care. Can't even say careful because that just makes us tight. But there's a way to be full of care that isn't tight. It's liberating because it's the law. When we really care about not harming, it doesn't make us neurotic and tight it frees up the heart. When we really care about avoiding hatred and cultivating kindness, it's liberating. It's not, oh, I can't, I just want to rage. I just want to burn it down, but I can't because I decided to be a Buddhist. I'm supposed to be kind, but I hate this kindness. So that's the key it's not trying to be generous or trying to be kind or trying to be uh, full of care about harming. It's about when there is kindness, seeing the law. Oh yeah, this is liberating. This is for my own well-being, the well-being of others. This leads to unbinding until it is like an inner law. Like we just know deeply, stinginess is the cause for unhappiness all around. Generosity is the cause for happiness all around. Kindness is the cause for happiness all around. Ill will is the cause for unhappiness all around. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. So in, in Buddhism, morality, this is morality, it's really just a matter of collecting data. We're paying attention, we're stabilizing present moment awareness, so when there are unskillful states, then we observe the unskillful states, and we see the lawfulness of them. We're curious, like, oh, the mind has a lot of ill will. What is it being set in motion? Right? We intuit, we sense, we see directly, we feel directly in the body, in the mind, in the heart, the ill effects. Good to see. Same when we observe others. This is one of those, you know, the Buddha's uh, pretty limited things that are wholesome to talk about with other people. 
you know, politics is out, <laughs> food is out. I mean, not food in the sense of like, we should make dinner, but like, hey, have you gone to this restaurant? <laughs> you know, just the, what normally fills up, but talking about what's skillful and unskillful with your friends and the law, like, boy, I noticed this, and I created such a hell room for myself. And it was so good to see that that's not the way, you know? That that's not onward leading to anything this heart wants. And I'm really happy to see that. How about you? <laughs> what have you been seeing, you know? What is the law that is being revealed to you? And then you see why ignorance is so dangerous, because ignorance, the, the definition of ignorance is this mostly unconscious, but sometimes conscious presumption, there isn't a law. It doesn't matter. You just, I'm just getting by. And it's just, like I was saying earlier, it's convenient to imagine that we don't really have much to do with happiness and unhappiness. It's just sort of a random nihilistic thing that's going on here. And I'm just hoping for the best, you know, right out my time. And uh, hope I got the lucky roll of the dice or something like that. I mean, what do we think? And initially, you know, when we cultivate the attitude that I'm suggesting, you know, there are these causes for happiness, and there are these causes for unhappiness, then it evokes a kind of vigilance. And the Buddha makes a big deal of apamada as the Pali word gets translated as vigilance. The opposite would be being negligent, imagining that it doesn't matter. And the Buddha said that this vigilance, this heightened concern for our well-being and the well-being of others is the main ingredient for freedom, for the deathless. And being negligent, it's as if you're already dead. Because you're, we're just on autopilot when we're negligent. We're just acting out the predominant habits of the mind. And we see that in ourselves and we see it in others too. Just like doing what they've done, getting the same kind of results. It's like you, you, you can see, and sometimes in slow motion, somebody, the kind of attitudes, the kind of choices, their mind and actions animated by greed or hatred or delusion, and you see the slow or quick implosion of their life. And it's heartbreaking. We see it collectively, Right? And it's heartbreaking when we look around, you know, just at our short-term fixations and then, but we know that whatever it is that we're doing collectively, it can't be sustained. I mean, it's just, it doesn't take that much reflection to realize. And yet, we can't seem to collectively make a change. And I see that just in terms of my own pernicious habits, you know, around greed, around hate, around delusion. 
but I persist. Yeah, or can I see, like, when it happens, am I willing to, well, let me just, I'm not going to say yes or no to this, do what you're going to do, body, mind, heart, right? But awareness is going to come along. And study, cause and effect, basically. And it's nice just to memorize these wholesome and unwholesome roots, because you can pretty much put every mind state in one of these three things. You know, greed and hatred, I think it was Gil Franzel said, are like the caffeine of ignorance, delusion. So that's the third, delusion. is the more passive and greed and aversion are the more active expression of ignorance. And ignorance just means being unaware or being disconnected from the way it is, being unaware of the way it is, or thinking that you know, because it's never how we conceive it. And then non-greed, and there's lots of flavors of non-greed, so dana, this, this, this sense of like not needing to hold, and there's lots of examples, beautiful examples of people. I mean, humans have a real capacity for generosity. But it's just interesting that we sort of feel a bit like uh, we're going to get taken advantage of. You know, if you told your friends at home, I mean, imagine this, just imagine a group of your friends and colleagues, whatever, and you're having a meal, and you just said, you know, I'm going to make a real study of generosity. And I'm going to, if it really seems to be loosening the screws of unhappiness and setting emotion, a greater lightness and well-being, I'm just going to build my life around it. You can imagine, not that they would do it in front of you, but rolling their eyes, like, you are such a sucker. They're going to... The world is going to drain you dry, and don't come looking to me <laughs> to bail you out, you know, and you give your car away, or you do, you know, whatever that people are afraid of. It's, and we use those sort of extreme things to scare ourselves into doing, because the study that's being recommended by the Buddha is like, Pay attention to cause and effect and see what actually leads to happiness. You know, so it's really pragmatic. It's not saying, you know, make generosity, like I'm not saying make generosity some idealistic law. I'm just saying when your own experience tells you that something, that, that there's a, you know, a trustworthiness to something, then your own experience is telling you that. It's like when you see something for yourself, you take a balloon and go around the earth and you come back to the same place, it doesn't matter if everyone tells you it's flat, you know, you've kind of done the homework, you've collected the data, you know what works. And just imagine what kind of life you and I would have 
and what kind of world we'd have if maybe starting in kindergarten, you know, our teachers in a very non-forced way would say something like, uh, you know, it's still a bit of a mystery to me personally, but I have it on good authority that generosity and kindness and uh, not harming others, really caring about not harming, will make you really happy. And I think you should check it out. And when, when you find yourself because of the force of habit, you know, being really hateful, just see how that's working for you. I mean, wise parents, and I was a school teacher for a long time, Shelley still works in the schools a little bit. Um, wise teachers do this, you know, when a kid is really suffering because of their actions, you know, not in, not necessarily right away, but a little bit later, later when they're more reflective. You know, we want them to connect the dots. So what happened? And now how are you feeling? And how's that working for you, you know? And then help them imagine another pathway. So if something like that were to happen again, what might you say or do or think? How might that play out? How do you feel about that? Because it's all about understanding cause and effect. And either we think it doesn't matter, which is fine to come to that conclusion, but it's only fine if you've actually done the research that your actions, the way you relate, doesn't matter. But mostly, like I've been saying, we think it doesn't matter because it's bothersome to think that it does matter and to be interested in checking it out because we're afraid we're going to have to then live in accordance to what really matters. And it's interesting how we're actually in some ways afraid of happiness and well-being. And I think it, I mean, everything's understandable, right? Everything's lawful. And my guess is it's because we're a little fried a little burnt out, like we've made a push to set good emotion in our lives, but it was a little superficial, wasn't so grounded in experience, and then it fails, and then we feel betrayed. And we can do that a few more times before it's like, I, I don't think it's worth the effort. I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to be seen as a schmuck that thought that could be happy in a deeper spiritual sense. So the key is to really emphasize the stability of awareness, because then we can't help but see how things work. And we just, you know, we're, we're still going to get in those vortexes of greed or hate and the dramas that, especially like on retreat, they just stand out. But then there will be the moment where awareness comes back online and we're aware of having been lost in thought for 15 minutes, steaming about something or lusting after something. And without any judgment, the wisdom and awareness is basically going to sense, oh, when there's that, there's this. 
with the arising of that, those states, you get this. This is the law. Good to see. Good to know. And, and when the impulse to do more of the same, like to hate ourselves for having gotten that vortex, then, then the law is right there to say, no, see, you're doing it again. This doesn't work. What works is forgiveness. Try it. You know, it's like that conscience, what in Buddhism we call hiri otapa. It's really how the past speaks to the present as intuition. It's that quiet voice. Oh, honey, are you sure? That it depends on the stability of present moment awareness. There's no morality. There's no goodness, real goodness, and there's no self-care or care for the world without the stability of present moment awareness. It's that intimacy that makes everything possible. Otherwise, here's another kind of graphic simile from the Buddhist teachings. Otherwise, we're like a fish out of water. So if you know that, uh, maybe as a kid you went fishing you know, and the fish flopping around, desperate to get back in the water. Well, maybe I'll read this poem to end. This is by um, Pesha Gertler, The Healing Time, from the book The Healing Time. And the poem is, Finally on my way to yes. Finally on my way to yes, I bumped into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street again and again. Where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. And I love this poem because it's such a nice example of, of that alchemy where we've transformed all of the unskillful tendencies and habits and past experiences, and now it's turned into spiritual gold. Like that's, Those are all my data points of what doesn't work, right? And it's what allows us to not go down those roads. Instead of being embarrassed or burying all those mistakes, we want to uh, let them become these monuments like this poem describes of truth. Oh yeah, this is how life works. Yeah. Holding that resentment for all those years might be understandable, might be acceptable in our usual sense, but how did it work for me? 
It was like a dead weight. Not to my, not for my well-being or the well-being of others. Well, what's another way? What other kinds of seeds can I plant now? Right with that resentment, right? We start right there, you know? I could resent my resentments. You idiot, I can't believe you've been resentful for all these years. Or just pretending that I'm not resentful. Who's resentful? You know, just burying it again until it creeps in. But that stability of awareness, that's what wisdom and awareness sees. It, it cares about cause and effect. That's the very definition of wisdom. Wisdom is that part of the mind that discerns cause and effect because it understands that it matters. And that's what we call compassion. Compassion cares about cause and effect because it wants to minimize suffering. Here, there, everywhere. So let's uh, take a moment, let go of the words. Just uh, some time for a few deep breaths. Just enough time to plant a couple of wholesome seeds. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.